Welcome to Rereads. To Rereads. For my few and faithful listeners, thank you for making the journey with me during this whole podcast project known as Rereads. This last episode is intended to take the role of epilogue as I want to bring closure to the project. I started rereads a couple of years ago as I was trying to sort out the many things that were bouncing around in my head. As a grieving parent and one who stepped out of a 30-year call as a pastor and teacher, there was much mental inertia that needed to come to rest and find its proper home. The writing and recording of rereads did much for me in the way of integrating thoughts and feelings and experiences that have culminated in the last few years. As you have listened, you have observed from the bleachers as I have tried to understand life and faith just a little bit more with the help of these literary companions. So thank you for your patience as I have tried to find words to bring order to some of the chaos. I end where I began, with a consideration of Thomas Merton. Whereas his book New Seeds of Contemplation was composed in the first years of his monastic life, this present book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, came in the waning season of his life. It is fitting to me that Merton sets the prologue as well as the epilogue. So as I end rereads, I want to leave you with some thoughts that have been helpfully framed by Thomas Merton. How do we think about the world? I'm not asking, what do we think about the world? Although, also, an important question, albeit one that can reduce our thoughts to mere opinions. What I'm asking is, how do we think about the world? Further, how do we think about ourselves in this world as we consider this world? As we have walked through all the months of 2020 and are now approaching the halfway mark of 2021, I am mindful that there is a lot to think about. Some may suggest that there is too much to think about. It is a tricky thing to not be swallowed by the events of the day and the circumstances of our lives. It is equally important to not fall into a state of apathy and and ignorance over the condition of life, both our lives and the lives of others. The ongoing goal of the Rereads Project has been to consider authors that have helped me to think about my thinking, Trusted guides who have not just told me what I wanted to hear, but who have had the wisdom to challenge my assumptions over a long period of time. Simply put, authors and books that continue to surprise me. The exercise of rereading doesn't always require great breaks of time in between our considered attention of a certain book. Many of the selections I have made for rereads have had at some point whole decades in between readings. Yet there is a different interaction of the reread experience that I would like to deal with in this final episode. It considers those go-to books, the ones we keep close at hand, the books we frequently throw in the duffel bag in our familiar travel companions, those books that we find to be ongoing, quote, manuals for living. 
They are the type of books that we read and reread, returning to again and again, not to further inform our knowledge base, but to deepen our understanding of God, ourselves, others, and the world we live in. Such a book is Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. I guess that for me, Conjectures is not a book I have read, laid down, and then have chosen to reread, but it is a book that I've just not stopped reading. Again, like a manual, I continue to consult its pages. If you've been making the reread journey with me, then you have probably noticed that the person of Thomas Merton is a frequent guest and contributor to the podcast. More than being a Merton fanboy, I uphold his writing as one who changes as the world changes. Not that he molds his answers to the whims of a fluid culture. He'd be a poor monk if he did. But Merton realizes that the world asks different questions as as culture unfolds. One of the many things I appreciate about Merton is that this rapidly changing world needs steady souls who can offer questions and considered observations to a culture that cries out in the chaos, What's happening? What do I think about all this? How do I think about all this? In Merton's case, He is a contemplative who cares deeply about God and cares deeply about the world God loves. Writing in the preface of his book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, Merton states, I do not have answers to current questions. I do have questions, and as a matter of fact, I think a man is better known by his questions than his answers. It might be easy to dismiss Merton at this point, and maybe even turn off the podcast, and assume that the work is nothing but mere sophistry, uh, questioning for its own sake. Like the contrarian front-row student who regularly raises their hand and begins every sentence with, but don't you think, or can I just say, I don't believe that is what Merton is attempting. I do think that the good father is inviting the reader into a conversation, both a conversation he is having within the pages and a conversation he wants to have with the reader. If one desires a fuller thesis, Merton lays one out in the introductory summary. Maybe the best way to characterize this book is to say that it consists of a series of sketches and meditations, some poetic and literary, some historical and even theological, fitted together in a spontaneous, informal, philosophical scheme in such a way that they react upon each other. The total result is a personal and monastic meditation, a a testimony of Christian reflection in the mid-20th century, a confrontation of 20th century questions in the light of a monastic commitment which, inevitably, makes one something of a bystander. This is why I believe Merton's title of the work is a helpful reminder of who he is and what he seeks to entertain in this book. 
these are the conjectures, the, the thoughts of one who pays attention to what is going on around him. Specifically, he is an observer of the events playing out before him in the tumultuous days of the 1960s. What possible relevancy can a monastic contemplative, one who is even living in a hermitage in his closing years, have upon a culture filled with social and political unrest, racial injustice and outrage, and the escalating violence of Vietnam? To be sure, his is an interesting and unique perspective, and I understand that Myrna is not the only helpful observer of his age. That said, his conjectures, I believe, offer us a helpful perspective into our own days of unrest. Merton writes, Faith is by no means a mere act of choice, an option for a special solution to the problems of existence. It is birth to a higher life by obedience to the source of life. To believe is thus to consent, to hear, and, and to obey a creative command that raises us from the dead. What could be a deeper motive for belief? We believe not because we want to know, but because we want to be. I have some thoughts. The author puts forth the idea that faith is not simply some pacifier to soothe us through difficult days, a, a Google search for answers to life's vexing questions. Faith, as Merton suggests, is a yearning mind, a listening heart, seeking the source of life. What I have spoken before is presence, the cultivation of who we are in the presence of God. This is what Merton is speaking to when he says, We believe, not because we want to know, but because we want to be. Faith is not merely some, quote, positive outlook. Rather, faith throws us back into the source of all life and being. The hidden wholeness, to use a Merton phrase. The hidden wholeness of life in Christ the intention of this faith posture is not mere navel-gazing, but a way of being grounded in a shaky culture. For the world needs anchored souls. Merton continues, To be a solitary, but not an individualist concern, not with merely perfecting one's own life, one's solitude belongs to the world and to God. Solitude has its own special work, a deepening awareness that the world needs, a struggle against alienation. True solitude is deeply aware of the world's needs. It does not hold the world at arm's length. To cultivate solitude is not to be a misanthrope, there's a greeting card that we like to buy our introvert friends that says, This is how much I like you. To buy this card, I had to go out and interact with humans. Solitude opens us up to the presence and needs of others, giving us a greater capacity for compassion. Simply, compassion is nurtured in solitude. 
The solitary musings of Thomas Merton are a consideration of the ways that human beings interact, even in our broken relationships and cultural systems. As the violence of this last year has played out with all of its resulting protests and counter-protests of Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, Asian Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, the following questions are appropriate to ask. Why do we hate? Why are we so quick to vilify, quote, those people, whoever those people may be? Merton names such attitudes and actions as Pharisaism. He writes, Pharisaism is not self-righteousness only, but the conviction that in order to be right, it is sufficient to prove that somebody else is wrong. As long as there is one sinner left for you to condemn, then you are justified. Once you can point to a wrongdoer, you can become justified in doing anything you like, however dishonest, however cruel, however evil. What we seek is not the pure truth, but the partial truth that justifies our prejudices, our, our limitations, our, our selfishness. This is not the truth. It is only an argument strong enough to prove us right. And usually our desire to be right is correlative to our conviction that somebody else, perhaps everybody else, is wrong. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the author Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote, Hate gives identity. In other words, I define myself by what I am not, by what I loathe. Further, my characterizations of people by naming them, uh, tagging them with an identifier, moves them into the category of other. Other, other than me and my kind who validate my convictions. This can be subtly dangerous. Taxonomy serves a purpose in identifying and organizing organisms. But when it is weaponized to distinguish groups by race, ethics, and ideology, we then are employing a mechanism of hate. When Merton calls out the way of pharisaism and the nature of hatred, he underscores some of his considerations of the race riots of the 1960s. Again, his, his thoughts are prescient. Merton suggests that the protesting of blacks brings out, quote, unconscious guilt and fear for many in white America. By way of protest and calling out the evil of racism, whites grow to resent and hate the movement because they are made to, quote, struggle openly with the deadly fear of hating himself. Being told that you participated and benefited from a racist system leads many in white America to become defensive. It is easier to offload those unpleasant feelings on the other blaming the victim. 
I would offer that this mid-20th century monk offers us language and helpful insights to navigate the intense, troubling thoughts, feelings of racial conflict, social unrest, and the uncertainty that many have felt in the early 21st century. Contemplatives have something to offer to activists in ways that will hopefully forward conversation, empathy, and humility. I'll end with these two selections from Merton's Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. First, an observation of the cultural climate of his day. We are living in the greatest revolution in history. A huge, spontaneous upheaval of the entire human race. Not the revolution planned and carried out by any particular party, race, or nation, but a deep, elemental boiling over of all the inner contradictions that have been in humans. A revelation of the chaotic forces inside everybody. This is not something we have chased, nor is it something we are free to avoid. The revolution is a profound spiritual crisis of the whole world, manifested largely in desperation, cynicism, violence, conflict, self-contradiction, ambivalence, fear and hope, doubt and belief, creation and destructiveness, progress and regression. I would remind the listener that these observations were made in the mid-1960s. I believe Merton was asking the question, how are we to be in such a world as this? Another way of asking the question is, who does the world need us to be? The second selection from Merton is one that answers, in part, the question that we just asked. Who does the world need us to be? It is a prayer, and what I would call a a life prayer, as we journey in uncertain days. Therefore, Father, I beg you to keep me in the silence, so that I may learn from it the word of your peace, and the word of your mercy, and the word of your gentleness to the world. And that through me, perhaps, your word of peace may make itself heard where it has not been possible for anyone to hear it for a long time. Over the last couple of years, I've been wondering about my place in the world. Which, again, is why I created the Rereads Project. The above selection has helped me to understand my role in this life. One of the things I have come to see is that there are people in my life that I love and who find my presence in their lives to be helpful. Eugene Peterson used to call this, quote, our soil, our sphere of relationships, our our context, the, the place where our lives are rooted, the earthy place where God is growing our life. This 
is my place in the world. As I close the podcast, but never the books, I leave with these last thoughts from Thomas Merton. By accepting our place in the world and our tasks as they are, we come to be liberated from the limitations of the world, content with one's moment of history and one's obscure task in it. One must be detached from the systems and collective plans without rancor toward them, but with insight and compassion. To be able to enter into the problems and the joys of all, to understand all, to be all things to all people. This cannot be done if we do not accept ourselves, our own problems, our own defeats. With the creative consent and responsibility that unite us to God's will and thus to the dynamism of history and its very source. This has been Rereads, and my name is Kent Place. A special shout out to my dear friend and producer Mark Stuckey, who helped bring this whole project into fruition. Thank you also for listening these last couple of years. I have so appreciated the ways you have encouraged me and challenged me. The story continues, my friends. So may the author of peace be with you. And remember, you can never step into the same book twice.